you do when you build yourself, only to realize you built yourself with the wrong things. You rip yourself up and start again, build up and tear down, endlessly, repetitively, unceasingly, bench and bench and bench. What will eventually be you? One day you'll marvel over what you did, marvel how you try to keep the loud, drunken, laughing, cussing, panicking, unbearably present secret of yourself, and really you were just about to be rid of the and it's really from all those quests. And how, like all the best quests, you did it all for a girl. Welcome to book club, everyone. So this month we've read How to Build a Girl by Caitlin Moran. It was published in 2014. The film was directed by Koki Gidrich. She worked on Save Me, Harlot, Seven Seconds, Good Behavior, so mostly a TV director before this, which is cool though. I think, you know, it should be a natural chain from TV to film, at the moment anyway. Uh, it was filmed in 2019 and then released July uh, of this year on Amazon as the world is burning and no one's going to the cinema, so that was our only option to watch it. So, Caitlin Moran adapted it. It is the first of two books. How to Be Famous is the second one. And she adapted the screenplay, um, the book into a screenplay as well. I think her previous work that she did in TV was doing the TV series Raised by Wolves, which is based off of her life. I never watched it. Um, it was two seasons, I think. You watched it? Did you like it? Uh, yes and no. Like, I think it's, some bits were really great. Like some, it has like some really sort of sharp, funny observations and then some bits were just a bit cringy for me. Okay. That is a very good description of Kitten Moran. <laughs> <laughs> So the blurb on the back of the book is a hilarious yet deeply moving coming of age novel. What do you do in your teenage years when you realize what your parents taught you wasn't enough? You must go out and find books and poetry and pop songs and bad heroes and build yourself. It's 1990 and Joanna Morgan, 14, has shamed herself so badly on local TV that she decides that there's no point in being Joanna anymore and reinvents herself as Dolly Wilde fast-talking, hard-drinking, gothic hero, and full-time lady sex adventurer. She will save her poverty-stricken bohemian family by becoming a writer like Joe and Little Women or the Brontes, but without the dying young bit. By 16, she's smoking cigarettes, getting drunk, and working for a music paper. She's writing pornographic letters to rock stars, having... Don't remember that bit, actually. <laughs> Well, except for the letter to John Kite was the she only thing. letters, but I wouldn't say they're pornographic. No, she told Kite about her sexual escapades. This only to one person. I would hardly denote him as a rock star. And make it sound more exciting. Yeah. Having all the kinds of sex with all kinds of men and eviscerating bands and reviews of 600 words or less. But what happens when Joanna realizes she's built Dolly with a fatal flaw? Is a box full of records, a wall full of posters, and a head full of paperbacks enough to build a girl after all? Imagine the bell jar, <laughs> written by Rizzo from Greece. How to Build a Girl is a funny, poignant, and heartbreakingly evocative story of self-discovery and invention, as only Caitlin Moran could tell. I agree with that. Yeah. This is a very her story. Like, I, I kept like thinking about like Mad Fat Diary and Adrian yeah. Mole. The entire time I was like, oh, this is very like of a style. It's not super breaking grounds, I think. So starring Beanie Feldstein, who is very American. So I'm not impressed at the attempt of a Wolverhampton accent, Midland. You're cringing. No? 
I will talk about this more later, but it honestly. So she plays Joanna Morgan. She was in Booksmart, which I really liked that mm-hmm. came out last year. You have Patty Considin, who plays her dad, who's in Game of Thrones, if I recall correctly. Uh, sorry, you forgot to say the great Paddy Constantine. The great Paddy Constantine. Wasn't he? He's not Baratheon. He's one of the, like, sea guys or something. I'll look it up. Yeah. I don't actually remember what he was in Game of Thrones, but he's a... He's a every every British actor is in Game of Thrones, so... You have Laurie Kynston, who plays Chrissy Morgan, her um, older brother. Chris O'Dowd, which I quite enjoyed, made an appearance as Alan Wilkinson, the sort of news guy. There's, there's a there's a huge list of sort of actors. Oh, oh I have I have that list of all the oh, Easter egg actors. <laughs> so you have Alfie, Alfie Allen who plays John Kite through her sort of love interest, Emma Thompson, Amanda who plays Amanda Watson, the editor of The Face, Frank Dillons who plays Tony Rich, who's like the bad love interest, and then all the Easter egg actors. So you have in her bedroom all these posters of sort of famous historical figures that she's obsessed with. You have Michael Sheen, who plays Dr. Freud. You have Soon Mel, and Mel is the director's sister, which I thought was interesting, uh, who plays Emily and Charlotte Bronte, Lily Allen, who plays Elizabeth Taylor, Gemma Arnerton, who plays Maria von Trapp, Jamila Jamil, who's Cleopatra, and I think that was all of them, really? Those ones I remember, yeah. Yeah. Um, we talk about sort of them as actors before we sort of get into the book versus film. What did you think of their portrayals, the roles? Well, all of them. Yeah, just in general. <laughs> I mean, I liked them for the most part. I thought Al- Alfie Allen was quite charming. They're not. I thought he was a great John Kite, actually. I yeah. thought he was really good. It was a good cast, actually. And yeah, like I think they got some really big names considering the project. Mm-hmm. And I, I would like to preface this by saying I love Beanie Feldstein. Like, yeah. everything she's ever done, loved her in, but I just could not get on with that accent. I, it made me struggle through the film. Like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think it was convincing enough to sustain a feature. The problem is her parents and Chrissy, her brother, are very good uh, uh, Midlands <laughs> accents. So in contrast, it makes hers look worse. Yeah, I did really struggle with that. She just was talking, speaking so slowly in comparison to them. I was like, she she has this very like specific rhythm that she was sticking to to try and seem authentic, but they were like just talking over her. Yeah. I felt and like I think she, she, she talks really fast because she's got so much energy and so many ideas, and to to kind of dial that back to try and get the accent and make sense to me. Like I'm quite surprised they didn't just. I know they wanted a name maybe to lead it, but it would have been great if they had like someone actually from Wolverhampton, like someone unknown that they could lead. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, I as, Tom, like as Tom like knows, it's all about getting those name actors to get that money. It's it's so bad. I would have, when she became Dolly Wilde, mm. I would have had a fake, fake, an American <laughs> accent as part of her Dolly Wilde <laughs> character to well, work so- around it. <laughs> or at least a London accent instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easier to do, isn't it? I think Waldo is very, like, I can't do, I'm English and I can't do a Waldo Oh, no, accent. no, no, no. Yeah. I have to say, I didn't really notice. Um, <laughs> maybe I wasn't paying attention to my Didn't Didn't bother me at all. Wow. Um, but then I think I, I, it's very easy to get caught up in her general stream of energy and sort of, 
enthusiasm for what she's doing as an actress. So I think I just kind of went with it. Yeah. Well, listening to like interviews with Caitlin Moran, she is more of a London accent, I feel like now. Like she didn't, her accent doesn't sound very Wolverhampton. But this is like mostly her real story. I know it's not, she says it's not autobiographical, but like she did move to London really young to become a journalist. So like she's probably lived in London longer than Wolverhampton. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I looked I looked up her TV show from The Raised by yeah, Wolves. No. That she used to present a music show with Johnny Vaughan okay. uh in like nineteen ninety-five. Ah. Which is when I first came across her. Um and actually I didn't think she had a very strong accent at all um in nineteen ninety-five. So maybe she lost it fairly early on. Yeah. Uh but it's called Naked City. If you're interested in looking it up, you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, that'd be cool. I did really like her dad. I thought he was played very well. Chrissy, I felt like he wasn't really what I envisioned in the book because he's like very tall and gangly and has like really big hair and sort of, but that didn't really bother me too much. Um, I guess, yeah, yeah, he was sweet. The Tony, like the swarmy Tony Rich character, I thought was, you know, worked. Very good, yeah. So... In general, I felt good about it. So, the book, so this is going to be some spoilers for Tom. <laughs> you, I mean, I'll give you a summary of it so you can sort of know the rhythms. So the book starts off with her masturbating next to her little brother. <laughs> and her then father brings home a drunk sound engineer, I think it was, who's going to help him break into the music industry as, you know, that's his get out of Wolverhampton card it, is that he's such a great musician, so he's gonna break into the industry. Then there's a scene after that where the mom has a meeting with a social worker to discuss postpartum, but then the social worker mistakes Joanna as the mother of the children, which for me that scene was kind of interesting because I thought the discussion about postpartum seemed kind of modern for the 90s. Just as a social care issue, which I'm like, sure, I'm kind of impressed that she was being treated for that, because I feel like a lot of people aren't actually treated for that even now. So, mm. so um, for someone who's like an older woman having young children, I thought that was interesting. Then her dad takes her to the Civic Center to uh, claim his disability, where he has to like exaggerate the fact that he's like hobbling. Even though he is, because they talk about the fact, and I don't know if they talk about it in the movie, where he was a firefighter and he was in an accident when he was a firefighter that sort of caused him bodily injury. Mm, I don't think it's mentioned. Which I, you know, I thought that was interesting and it kind of shows he's not like just this loser. You know, he really tried hard, but was actually quite horribly injured in doing so. Um, and has quite a legitimate disability. Then she confesses to her elderly neighbor who she's kind of using as an outlet as a friend because she doesn't really have any friends that her father's on disability, even though no one's really supposed to know about it. Then, and then after that, she wins a poetry competition and goes on TV. Now this made me really mad because in the film, the poem is completely different. Yeah. yeah. And much more embarrassing. Where in the book, I kind of, she sounded kind of cool in the book. Like, yeah, I can see other kids maybe being, thinking she's weird, but she kind, 
she seemed like she was very secure in herself when she was on TV in the book. I mean, she did a Scooby-Doo impression in both, which isn't the coolest <laughs> of, uh, yeah. isn't the coolest of things. I don't know. It was sort of like right on, though. It was sort of I don't know to have that. You know, she didn't sound as nervous, I think, when I was reading the character. Mm. And then she comes up with the alter ego, Dolly Wilde, um, and then runs into her cousin, Allie, who you see a lot in the book, who is sort of a goth and an outlier in her family and sort of kind of helps usher Joanna to realize she can be different and kind of create a new persona. And she decides to go to a record shop where she gets a free music magazine and that is sort of what inspires her to become a music journalist as sort of her way out and becomes obsessed with Radio One and kind of listening to all the new music as well as starts going to the library to check out CDs. Then I really love this in the book where they talk about when Thatcher loses the election, really kind of sets the background for what's happening politically there as well as the fact that in her family there's lots of minors so it, also knowing the political slant of her family and how they're affected by what's going on in the government at the time she then gets a job interview at the dme by submitting some of her writing to them and she starts reviewing albums for i forget how much it was so she's submitting different album reviews and then she gets her first concert review she goes with her dad and in the book it is smashing pumpkins which I quite enjoyed as I have met Billy Corrigan several times. <laughs> he, he lives in... Why, why is this only coming up now? Why have I never heard about Billy Corrigan? He lives in the, the town that I grew up in as a kid that my dad still lives in. And he, that's where he grew up. He went to the same high school as me and he moved back there in his retired age. And he kind of does a lot of community outreach there. And he opened up a tea shop called Madame Zuzu's, which eventually had to close. <laughs> it's not successful. But he's done like stuff at my niece and nephew's elementary school and sponsored events and things like that. Oh, that's cool. He's sort of very aged rocker. <laughs> Without being that old. Wow. I might cut this out of the recording. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't need his personal life put on the podcast but so she I kind of enjoyed that in the first concert she sort of stumbles has a hard time is like oh, I'm out of place I need to like figure my shit out and then in the film it's the Mannix right sorry in the film it's the Mannix Street Preachers yeah. yes which she does talk about in the book they come up quite a bit she decides to leave school and her parents have this big fight over it which in the book, her family loses 11% of their benefits, which she doesn't find out until later. Is that because she leaves school, they don't have to like pay for someone's education. So that's what the 11% is. It's her being like an earning adult. So they, in theory, don't need those benefits anymore. So then she flies to Dublin to interview John Kite, which I loved that scene in the book where in the book, you know, they stay up all night and walk the streets of Dublin and she eventually passes out in his tub and pisses next to her in the bathroom. And it's just kind of this really funny rocker scene. Then she writes the interview and it's super fanny uh, and they publish the interview and they put all these little like commentaries in the interview, taking the piss out of her. 
and then she stops getting work, but she starts like partying a lot and she hangs out with her cousin Allie where she makes out with this guy named the kisser at a gig. And there's this really cute scene in the book. I don't know if you remember this, where she dances with her brother in the dark, yeah. Chrissy, which is really sweet. And then she kind of like forces the magazine to let her start writing again and hooks up with Tony Rich, this douchebag of the story, and starts having the lady sex adventures, <laughs> which I really thought were really funny. Like the wax balls and the big cock owl were two of my favorite scenes of the book. I don't know what you thought of them. They sound like they would be my favorite scenes had I read the book. Yeah, read that chapter. I don't know. The depiction of that kind of sex period, sex adventuring, is so much better in the book. I feel like the film kind of really minimizes it and doesn't really make as much of a thing of it. They could have just done like one of those relationships, like like the wax balls or something, like as a scene. Yeah. (laughs) Explain to Tom. The, the big cock owl, is that what you wanted to see? Oh, they do that in the movie. <laughs> yeah, they do. But it's sort of very shortened and not oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. funny. It's like a montage. Yeah. yeah. The wax balls is that she reads about BDSM and like thinks it's cool. So she decides to pour hot wax of a candle on a guy's balls. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was really good. Started, yeah, it sounds interesting. <laughs> and then... She kind of starts, she starts writing only negative reviews because that's what's cool and is developing this relationship with Tony. Now I have to ask you, how do you interpret the scene? So the weird, the SMM scene she had with Tony where he's like kinky. Do you remember this? In yeah. the book, yeah. yeah. Um, I couldn't tell what was kinky about it because it didn't sound weird. It, I don't think she said it explicitly what it was she just said like he wanted to do that kind of thing and she didn't really like it and it kind of hurt her and then she was like actually I'm just gonna let him do it because he likes it so it doesn't matter if I like it and I think that's like a bigger commentary okay but I don't, I don't think she ever explicitly said what he wanted she talked about him pinning her hands and spanking her a lot but okay. yeah. it doesn't go any further than that Okay. Yeah, a lot. So, Tom, in the book, a lot of it talks about, and she kind of reflects upon this in the book that she knows this is wrong, that her sexual relationships are about, are about pleasuring the men, not about her pleasure, because she never orgasms throughout the entire book in any of these relationships. And she doesn't realize that's a problem, obviously, and she only thinks she has to please them. And that's how she mm. gets her pleasure. But she does make nod to the fact that, like, as an adult, she realized that's not how it should work. So after this, she has, like, a fight with her brother. And she goes to Tony's parents' house and meets his posh friends. And then there's this, she essentially proposes to have a threesome with one of a girl that he's also sleeping with as a way to, like, entice him. But then, um realizes they're trash-talking her and stands up for herself. Sorry, they're what now? Trash-talking her. Trash-talking, okay. Yeah. yeah, sorry, I thought this was a phrase I'd never heard before. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then she sort of runs away and then she goes to stalk John Kite at the pub and 
they kind of get drunk and wander around and she tells him her feelings about him and that she loves him and then she wakes up having passed out in his hotel room and just kind of leaves really embarrassed and then goes home and she cuts herself and Chrissy finds her and kind of helps her and hides the entire situation from the family and she kind of realizes how much she's fucked up her life and then after kind of healing herself she stays working for the DME and decides to kind of just cover music she likes and not write negative reviews and she's hanging out with Z who's a character you meet in the book who's sort of everyone in the magazine looks down on him because he likes like the indie scene and he publishes his own like rock zine and then she decides to move to London with Chrissy and her brother and then that's the story. From the way you, from the way you have laid it out, I think they've done a really good job at make, forging it into a ninety-minute or however long it has been feature film story. It feels like a lot of the supplemental material that was left by the wayside. I mean, sure, it sounds like it could have been they could have been fun scenes, but it doesn't feel like there's anything majorly from the narrative of the film that wasn't that was left out. I don't know how people who actually read the book feel about it, but that was what I was thinking while you were talking through it. I mean, so we can ask the question, did we, before we kind of break down the film, did we prefer the book or the film? Uh, The book. Yeah, I agree. I prefer the book. I just thought in the book, she's much less evil and like unnecessarily cruel. And there's still like moments of like her true self that shine, even though she's kind of going through these changes. And she kind of is still able to reflect on her actions and she knows she might be doing something wrong. Well, it it sounds like the book is potentially much more nuanced in its description of her exploration of her growing identity. And whereas the film is obviously trying to tell a fairly familiar story in very broad brush strokes and doesn't get into anywhere near the same level of detail. But I have to say, I, I thoroughly enjoy a film that carries me along with its energy and general, you know, nothing really overstays its welcome. It just keeps punching along and it, it does so reasonably, stylishly and, and entertainingly. Yeah. Um, so I sort of wonder if that, you know, adding more of that stuff in would have slowed the film down and made it a very different and potentially more um i don't know less less enjoyable experience but i by the sounds of things i'd really enjoy the book i may well read it at some point i do i think because there's a lot of like pop culture references come through throughout the book and she does like quotations to books she's referencing as she's writing which i thought was a really cute nod because she's like a book nerd well the other thing that i just remembered while i was thinking about it was prozac notion i don't know if that's a reference that means anything to anybody no. no, I know of it, but I haven't read it. Well, there, there was a there was a female American music journalist uh, whose name is currently escaping me, who wrote a book called Prozac Nation about her teenage years, struggles with drugs, and development as a journalist. Elizabeth Wurzel. Um, and for a while, Elizabeth Wurzel was like a counterculture writer. She wrote uh, there's a there's a book called Bitch, which is really good, which is a collection of her essays on feminism. Um, but that sort of felt like a much more serious counterpoint to this, which was much more, I don't know, 
light-hearted, um, yeah. which I guess was was probably very deliberate choices by the production team in terms of trying to, and probably goes with the decisions about casting. Yeah, in I terms mean, of trying to make it commercial. The book to... isn't as YA, I think, as the film is. Right. I don't know if you agree. It kind of is. You think so? I mean, it's British yeah. YA. It's not American YA. I mean, I think I definitely would have read it as a teenager and still probably enjoyed it in a different way, but still enjoyed it. And I think, I don't know. Yeah, I think I probably read quite a lot of books with those themes as a teenager. I feel like it ticks all of the boxes of... Yeah. YA for women or girls at mm. least maybe not generally but by the sounds of things the book went into a lot more detail um you know the film hints at a threesome or sort of gives you a kiss version of a threesome whereas by the by the sounds of things the book sort of went into a lot more yeah. detail well they don't actually ever have the threesome she just like proposes it and then same thing in the film she finds out that they're being assholes and then kind of confronts them about it. I mean, it does go into more detail about her relationships and the relationship with Tony Rich is much more long-term in the book. And she has a lot of thoughts, which I think, you know, everyone at that age has those thoughts. Like you're hooking up with someone. Are they my boyfriend? Do they really like me? Do I need to say something? Or is it just a hookup? Like, I don't know. And I'm too scared to ask them. And it's a lot of those thoughts that I think, you know, young people can relate to. Which... Oh God, he's supposed to be Tony Parsons. I've just figured it out. The Tony Rich. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> really? don't, know why, don't know why that took me so long. Yeah, because I was reading about her using a lot of Julie Birchall's life and Julie yeah. Birchall and Tony Parsons dated for a really long time. So that kind of is what leads to her freaking out in the book is that she thinks they might be having a serious relationship, but then finds out that he's sleeping with other people. And she sort of freaks out about that and realizing that he's just using her. So in the film, okay, I'm gonna try and do as quickly <laughs> as possible. So the film starts out, you're, she's fantasizing uh, in school about all the cute boys, but there are no cute boys in Wolverhampton, which I thought, I suppose the scene is a good replacement for obsessive masturbation, which you get a lot of in the book. <laughs> so she's chased out of school and she drops the female eunuch, which I thought was kind of ironic because she doesn't really seem like much of a feminist in the film and how she like treats herself. <laughs> she we kind of get introduced to her family and then you have like all the talking pictures of the people who's influenced her. The, you get the top of the pops and her dad playing drums and sort of him being in a band. And then they're watching TV and she finds out she's went, won the poetry competition. So there's no real lead into that. Then she checks out with her, checks out boys with her brother, which I, I don't know how you feel, felt about this. So in the book, I felt like Caitlin Moran was really gay baiting us with her brother. Like in the book, for me, obviously, Chrissy was gay. And there's this whole thing about Z and I was like, ah, another story would be that Z and Chrissy hook up. Because they talk about him looking at the pink papers. Whereas in the film, she's very outright about the fact that he's gay. Mm -hmm. Did you get that? Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. That, yeah, I think that is true. Because she doesn't reveal... He's game, but like it's kind of hinted at, but she doesn't confirm it till the very end. From well, she doesn't even confirm it in the end. She just says, "Oh, they're going to go check out clubs." 
And he's going to make. She said he wants to go to a first. He's at the Take That concert, saying he'd suck off Robbie. She says, and he, I, I, I love that Chrissy's getting into the spirit of it. Yeah, he literally asks yeah, her. Yeah, he he's like, which ones her. would you do in what order? Yeah, yeah, and the, yeah. the way she phrases her response is like, she thinks he's just. I'd take that as confirmation, personally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but it's just sort of like, why are you not? Why is she not willing to out the character? But maybe that is maybe she's trying to represent those people where no one wants to ask them or to put them on the spot and make them talk about something they don't want to yet, or I don't know. Is it is so it necessary to out everybody? Well, I don't know. Maybe the book is a more realistic representation of it's hard it was harder to be gay, obviously, in the nineties than it is now. And maybe they're being a little too modern in the film and him being so comfortable with being gay. But when she does hint at it in the book, I don't think it's ever with an element Maybe not for him, but for her as his sister, she never seems uncomfortable with it. She's just kind of like, yeah, that's... I don't know. She just doesn't seem aware of gay people, though, in the book. Like, that that is an option, really. No, she talks about bisexual. Uh, everyone's bisexual after 11 and stuff like that, though. Yeah. But, right, because I don't think they're... Because I think Z is played as being gay, essentially, but he doesn't exist in the film, so... My fantasy that is that the book was about the two of them, but <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, so, maybe, maybe you'll get the answers you're looking for in the sequel. Yeah. So then she has this whole. There's this whole storyline in the film where she chats with her English teacher, and it kind of comes back to that quite a bit. Where her English teacher thinks she can do a lot with her life. She's super talented which I kind of felt unnecessary. And it's sort of like, your education is the most important thing, even though you're crazy talented and you could earn a living now. And I kind of felt like they could have gotten rid of that. I didn't hate it. I think it's quite a common trope in this kind of film, but mm. I wasn't mad at it. It is, and at least she didn't, though at least there wasn't, because I think, if I remember correctly, I think at the end of the film, she makes some reference to having to go and do exams. And I immediately thought, oh, okay, there's going to be a reconciliation scene now with the English teacher where she runs back in and becomes a great student and regrets the mistake she's made, even though she's achieved more than any of her classmates by actually yeah. going out and doing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I was quite glad they didn't do that. So yeah. I, I think I really would have hated that subplot have they decided to do all of the bits of the trope that we're familiar with? But I feel like maybe it's the equivalent, because in the book, her parents don't let her spend any of the money. They're like, you need to be saving because you haven't got your education, you need to have backup. Like, whereas in the film, they're just like buying loads of, like she's buying dinner and all this kind of stuff. In the film, they're like, no, you need to put most of it away, we'll take a bit of it. But, and they make a real point of that. Whereas in the film, that's not really a thing. So maybe that's their way of putting value on more conventional things like, job security and having a backup plan and all that kind of stuff. Well, then it's kind of disappointing that they make, they dumb down her parents almost in the film, whereas like they take on the role of the English teacher in the book, whereas in the film, they decide to separate that out, that mm -hmm. role of like a responsible person above her. Well, that was quite savvy, considering how little money they have, them saying to her, no, you need to be saving things. I think, yeah, I think that made them more interesting as characters. Yeah. Like, they obviously do know how to do it. They've just never had the resource to do it themselves. Yeah, and it's sort of, you know, in the book it talks about, you know, her dad was obviously very screwed over by, like, the Thatcher regime and just had his life got fucked up. And it's not really his fault necessarily. So in the film, I just feel like 
they kind of make him suck I think more like he just won't give up his dream of being in a band and be responsible so well they, they need that moment of betrayal don't they for the for the narrative to work yeah. they need an easy target for her to betray him and feel bad about and then have to make amends for so then she goes on TV for the poetry competition with Chris O'Dowd, which I thought was quite fun to see him in that, uh, and then embarrasses herself on TV. And it was so maddening to me that the poem was different and really awful in comparison to like in the book, the poem was actually quite good, I thought. Definitely better. Definitely better. So it's, it's well, completely- I, I, I would see why they would do that. Like they need so, to- moment as humiliating as possible if it's just vaguely humiliating then why the sort of <laughs> spiraling change why why the impetus to change well I, I think it's to lead to the fact that they get their benefits taken away because the poem talks about the fact that her dad is breeding border collies as a way to make money I think she, that, says she says it's chris o'dowd yeah so she says it's him and that's why they get their benefits taken away because she says that in the poem versus all the stuff that happened in the book. Then her brother tells her about publishing her his zine, Thank You, which is in the book is another character does that and they sort of combine the two um, for the purpose of the film. And he prompts her to enter to write to DME. Then there's this whole scene, the scene in the film where she drops her pad during gym in gym class during the Annie song, which I was like, okay. It was very, I don't know if it added to the story. But that's what I mean. It sort of felt like dropped in out of nowhere. Like nothing leads up to it. It doesn't really do anything. I felt like they just needed to have some kind of period reference in there because it's Catelyn Moran and it's, you know, teenage girl rite of passage vibes. Did she talk about her period in the book? I don't think so. Not really, no. There's like, an entire chapter about societies, which yeah. they cut out, but they felt like they needed to add that in. I don't know. Oh, she benches like having to use a tampon for the first time, but <laughs> yeah, like it's not um, not quite as graphic. As yeah, that. but there's another period line in there. There is a linkage. Doesn't the kid and the younger kid ask her about periods? Oh, the little boy. Oh, yes. Oh, I forgot yeah. about that. That's true. Yeah, that's and I have to say, in a weird, okay, so this is a bit weird, but um, there was a very famous moment, maybe slightly after this, uh, where L7 threw their tampons into the crowd at the Reading Festival. Okay. So, I don't know, it, it, it immediately was the thing that came to my mind, just because mm-hmm. it was of their period, but... Uh, <laughs> 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 so funny. Um, yeah, no, that, that bit in the gym felt a little crowbarred in, like they needed something to bridge the time, so. Yeah. And then she goes to London for a meeting, and then they, like, talk her down, and then Bjork gives her pep talk in the bathroom, and then she goes and stand up for herself against the, you know, annoying men. And then, obviously, there's the necessary makeover scene that every coming-of-age film has. <laughs> You cannot have a teen film without a makeover scene. I love them. I'm like so in for a makeover scene. Because you're right, like it wouldn't feel right without one. Yeah. And the whole point of this is her reinvention. So So, my whole problem with the makeover scene is it wasn't enough. There was not (laughs) enough eyeliner. It was too stylish. 
I wanted more grunge and goth. And it was just like, she looked too expensive. I don't know if stylish is the word I would choose. (laughs) But it's like, those clothes were way too nice. She she talks about like having like panda eyes. She has so much eyeliner on. And she's meant to have like two quid to buy it all or something ridiculous. Like, yeah, I do agree. It all looks quite pristine. Yes. So I was just sort of like, it felt a little too glossy for my taste. The especially like of the '90s period, seeing people like who would dress in that s- style, it felt too costumey. It was the Instagram version. Yes. Uh, yes, as a child of the '90s, I would agree. It is <laughs> far too clean to be authentic. However, I think I think in general the filmmakers are going for a slightly more glamorous version of reality to appeal to their target audience. So I think they can be forgiven for having a slightly more stylish version of what is going on on screen. In very inverted commas. Yes. So for the home audience, there were inverted commas around that. Yeah. So after she gets her makeover, she goes to her first concert as Dolly Wilde with her dad, which is a very positive experience for her versus in the book. She then reads her byline as her first review comes out, and goes to a lot more concerts, starts making money and spends it on her family. And then she goes for a meeting in London and there's the very poignant scene of her sex's colleague saying, well, you'll get an interview if you sit on my lap. And she's like, I don't, I don't know what she, you would describe what she does to him. I really liked that scene. No, I thought it was a good way to handle, I guess, that. Yeah, no, I, I thought it I thought it was really, I thought it was, yeah, I'm not quite sure how you describe what she does, but she clearly changes what is happening into something different and by taking control of the situation, asserts herself and gets what she wants. I'm not sure I would do that. <laughs> I don't think I would have done any of what she does, especially at like 17. The, the confidence levels are astronomical in my book. Yeah. So, and then she flies to Dublin where she meets John Kite, which I thought was a bit of a snooze of a scene in comparison to the book. The flight or John Kite generally? John Kite, the scene where she's with him and they spend the night together. I just, I fell in love with his character more so in the book. And it was a little more, you know, in the wee hours into the cold morning, you know, we ramble through the streets and then, yeah. There's a, there's a hidden romantic version of Nora starting to come out. <laughs> this is interesting. And, it, and he's so gentlemanly and lets her sleep in the bed and he sleeps in the bathroom and there's no pissing in front of each other. Just too clean. So basically what your complaint is there's not enough pissing in this in this scene. Yeah, exactly. Okay. She brings the beer home for her dad, which she does in the book as well, which is quite sweet. She writes the interview about him, but the magazine doesn't publish it, which is different from the book. And then she doesn't get really any work and then confronts her boss and they, you know, say that she's being too much of a fan and that's not the point of what they're doing. So she starts writing all the negative reviews which is far more negative than I think the book really does. And then while she's doing it, she has her lady sex adventures, which is kind of a montage scene. I thought they did a really good job at setting that up though. That little bit of dialogue where the guy says, you misunderstand what we're doing here. We're fighting a war. 
Yeah. And our job is to clear the decks so the people with real power can go. Mm-hmm. It, it's so pithy. Yeah. No, a, it, it is good. As, as a distillation of, oh, okay, I get it. Now that's what I'm going to go and do. Yeah, totally buy it. But, yeah, I thought it was a really clever bit of writing. In the beginning, she, you, you meet the Tony Rich character and he says, oh, I'm exhausted. I just discovered Morrissey. I don't okay. remember that. <laughs> uh, then her dad sells the van to make albums of his music and he calls himself Mayonnaise. Which, <laughs> again, I find annoying because he's not dumb in the book. Whereas they make him dumb in the film. Like, he just doesn't really... But lovable, dumb. Yes, but it's just, like, he's very inconsiderate of his family, like, whereas in the book he, like, really makes an effort to, you know, I think more so anyway. And one of those moments in the film where the actress who plays the the mother and wife, yeah. just perfect dialogue for her sort of deadpan delivery. No. I don't, I don't know why I know this, but she is great at that kind of thing. She then goes to, like, a hangout with the, the members from magazine and she plays the album and then she shoots the album because they say it sucks so a bit of clay pigeon shooting on the roof now you have the award ceremony scene which i despised and was way too hollywood glossy for me where she confesses her love for john kite embarrasses herself and gets nominated for the ass of the year or something bob mortimer's cameo who's bob mortimer (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm going. Do you guys know who Bob Mortimer is? The British comedian. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He presents the award. That, that, is, that is a comparable cameo to Chris O'Dowd, but for some reason is not getting a sufficient mention here. Well, you're, you're mentioning it, so, you know. Uh, yeah, no, Bob Mortimer is the guy who gives the award. Did you guys enjoy the scene? I just felt like it seemed too fantasy sequence for me. In, in what way does it feel fantasy sequency? Well, it just didn't seem realistic. Like, this is, I can't imagine, like, being a music journalist in the 90s that this is. They do have awards. Like, I've been, I haven't been to awards dues like that, but I have been to awards dues, and they do do seats on the table, free drinks, like, and also in the 90s, journalism yeah. had way more money. Okay. Yeah, it, was a much, it was a much bigger deal. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it felt, it felt accurate to me. I mean, I've got no frame of reference, but. It's the kind of thing I would probably have read about in music press. Yeah, I bought into it 100%. It didn't seem odd to me at all. Okay. There just should have been more like drugs, maybe. <laughs> maybe, but it was, self, it was self-referential enough to feel right for the, for the period and, and that whole culture. Mm. Yeah. As in, this is an awards ceremony about us, by us, for us. So yeah. About the music. And we celebrate, like, what is it, biggest asshole of the year or whatever. Yeah. Like, that's an award. Like, now I don't think that would be... Yeah. No, but, but totally accurate for the time. Mm. Yeah. So after John Kite turns her down, she sleeps with Tony Rich, then writes the very cruel interview uh, about Kite, and then quits school after this. And then she goes to the party with all of the staff at some country estate and they're like all the posh girls and stuff. So then she makes out with a girl and so then she, they invite her into the jacuzzi and instead of like just put going with her underwear, she puts bin liners over herself. 
Which I'm very confused by. You're right, I didn't stop to think about that. But yeah. I had the exact same thought. I was like, if it's very fed to you, why doesn't she just go in with her underwear? Like, yeah. <laughs> they're like, it's not in the book. They, they, she invented that scene for, yeah. the film yeah. for some reason. <laughs> it just, I, was it supposed to be funny? Like, I don't, didn't really make sense. Why it's not even like it was a self-conscious thing because it didn't give her any more coverage. Yeah, yeah. Than yeah. a brown pants would. Like, it, <laughs> I don't know. And then they, she overhears them trash talking her. Then she goes and stands up for herself. And you asshole, blah blah blah. I'm better than you. And then she goes home and she's really upset because she realizes how wrong she's been um, all along. And then she cuts herself and then her mother finds her and they go to the hospital. And then after that, she goes home and apologizes to all the musicians that she's written horrible things for. <laughs> I love that scene. It's like AA, like you know, part of your- oh, I love, I love that you just sort of- uh, indistinct shouting on the other end of the phone. <laughs> She's like, like, I'm really sorry. Yes, <laughs> not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just goes on there. Right. It was good. And I, and, and I have to say, I really enjoyed the characterization of the parents in the hospital. I thought that the, the way the mother behaved was, felt really real. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I yeah, thought the mum did a really good, like, she's one of the best performances of the whole thing for me. Yeah. The way she's so, like, just broken at the beginning. Yeah. Is, like, really good. Well, I think Dad does a good performance. It's just mm. they whittle his character down to be, he's only got one thing, yeah. one driving force. And well, he's a bit like a one note joke, whereas the mother isn't a joke. The mother yeah, is yeah. a grounding presence. But yeah, that bit in the hospital I thought was really well observed. I'm looking up the mother's name because I we need to say it because right, she, she was does, in that long running sitcom. Yeah, she and him. She's from yeah. him and her. Him and her, sorry. Yeah. And she's in Bad Education and something else. She is in Bad Education. Yeah. 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 The teacher. Um, yeah. I know that's not. She's in something else quite big as well. What's the mother's name? I don't remember actually. Mrs. Moran. <laughs> no, Miss. Oh. Sarah Solomon, Angie Morgan. She plays That's Angie Morgan. Sarah Solomon. Yeah, I like. She's born in 1986, <laughs> and I think then because she's like 27, I think the in real life uh, the daughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's in No Fence, Inside Number Nine, a few other things. Um, so then after that, she decides to kind of re reinvent herself again. Uh, she applies for some work at The Face, which I think kind of recently closed, or in the last few it's years. It's back digitally, I think. Okay. I think like revived it. The kiss of that. Game over. The enemy. Still digital, allegedly. She interviews Emma Thompson and impresses her, and then she stalks John Kite as his hotel, gives him a copy of the original interview, which they never published in the film, in the zine that her brother's writing and she's contributed to. And then they walk off into the sunset together and she makes a whole speech about how you have to build yourself back up. You, you forgot. And there's the awful flashbacks, which I think... Not she gave him her hair. Oh yeah, and she gave him her, she gave him her hair. I forgot about that, sorry. <laughs> Very important. I really, liked, I really the, liked that scene. Oh yeah, which you hated. I hated the fourth wall break. Oh, that was it was so flea bag and uh, no. Yeah, it, 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 
to to just be the um, person in the room who's uh, the the devil's whatever advocate advocate. Yeah, um, I I I can see why in narrative terms they felt it necessary to make to 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 make that statement as clearly as they made it. I think they would have struggled to find a way of doing it, and possibly they did, without having a fourth wall break. Difficult to work it into the narrative that she could make that point to somebody so that... If it wasn't for Fleabag, that would have been a voiceover. <laughs> yes, 100% true. It would have been uh, them walking off and you would have heard her making the speech over the scene. Yeah, I didn't hate her, I must say. But I and those flashbacks to like it was very TV. I thought the flashback scene at the end. I am got the flashback scenes. I love how much Tom liked this movie. I know you really do. This is like the place you've liked the most. (laughs) I love this movie so much. The last night I bought a car to the Unstoppable Sex Machine live recording online. (laughs) Wow. It's the first CD I've bought in a decade. <laughs> well, I'm glad, Tom, this is like the first film you've actually enjoyed of anything we've done. Yeah, I think it might it's be. It's not the one I would have expected. I just think it, 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 it doesn't really mess about. It doesn't pretend to be doing anything except what it's doing. It I haven't looked at the full credits list. Are you on the credits list? Um, it, it does it with a certain degree of style and enthusiasm and attitude. And yeah, I mean, also for me, some bits of nostalgia, which kind of helps. Um, yeah. But I, no, I've been looking forward to watching it and I enjoyed it. Um, and You're maybe, making me like it more than my gigs. Yeah, but maybe yeah I know. I, th- I just thought it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I also, I also really like her. I haven't seen her give a performance that hasn't been... Yeah, no, she's a great full actress. Full of energy, and you just kind of want to participate and be hmm. around that. So, I think you have. And maybe because I've been watching a lot of nineteen forties black and white samurai movies recently, so you know it was <laughs> fresh air. What is she doing? Is what she's working on next? I'm just checking. So, oh, oh, she's playing playing Monica Lewinsky. <gasps> I'm so excited. In the American Crime Story. So she's apparently, they filmed that. Um, she's doing The Humans, which I don't know what that's about. Uh, it doesn't seem to be anything specific. And then she's filming, hold on, Merrily We Roll Along, based off of the children's song. <laughs> it's about a Broadway musical. Because I think she's like a big musical person, so as well so that's like a musical film she's doing next no i think she's a great actress she really like pushes anything she's in but yeah for me the film was just kind of cute and it didn't it wasn't as gritty as i wanted it to be like the book kind of really gets into some issues in a more like honest upfront way that i could connect with whereas i felt the film was like even more ya than the book was well, this is potentially another example of when I don't read the book and then watch the film. So I'm coming at it cold with a different set of expectations. So maybe if you read the book, you're expecting it to be a bit more nuanced and detailed and um, gritty or, you know, whatever. 
Well, I watched the movie. Well, I thought first. it was what it would be. You watched the movie first, and I read the book afterwards. Yeah, and like I, I thought the movie was like perfectly enjoyable and pleasant, but wasn't like blown away by it. And I read the book, and I was I was sad by not necessarily the things they missed out, but by the kind of the small things they changed. And I couldn't quite understand what benefit the movie gained from having changed certain elements. Do you give an example? I, I the two that spring to mind, um, biggest changes that I can't quite fathom why were. The fact that the movie, they lose their benefits because she writes a poem about her dad breeding dogs and confesses it on live TV. Whereas in the book, it's because she leaves school. So they cut the benefits from, because she's no longer classed as a child, she's eligible to work now. Um, and that felt like a, like a bigger point. It felt less like her, in the movie, it makes her seem like an idiot. In the book, it's a revelation to her at the end that it's because of her they've lost benefits for this reason and, and not for another reason that she suspects. Yeah, they could have kept it, couldn't they? And then when she's at her lowest ebb, it could be just one more thing. Yeah. The realization that the why they're all on the breadline is because of her as well. Yeah. Um, another big change was um, in the book, she doesn't write a horrible thing about John Kite. Yeah. I hated the most, I think. Yeah. It's unnecessarily cruel. Yeah, and I think... But she wrote something horrible. I thought she just gave out all of the confidences that... No, she doesn't in the book. No, in the film. Oh, in the film, yeah. yeah but he, you know, those are his secrets. Yeah, yeah. he talks about everything that he said off the record mm -hmm. to her. Yeah. He's very quick to forgive. I did like that scene, but... Yeah, I quite liked that scene as well, yeah. But I thought he was, he was very quick to to forgive and forget. But I think the whole way through, the only thing that redeems that for me, and I did really hate that change, I think she could have just become a less likable person without that. I think that was possibly too far. Hmm. But I do think the thing that redeems him the whole way through is the fact he recognises she's 17. Yeah, yeah. Like, and he has this real, like, respect for her age and understanding of it. Like, even, I can't remember if this is the book or the film or both, but when he, she's like, oh, we have to have sex. And he's like, we probably will one day, but you're too young for me. Or like, you know, they you're 17. It, yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's in the film. Yeah, so. yeah. I think he, I think that probably lends itself to him forgiving her more quickly than he would perhaps an adult, hmm. like a peer. Well, actually, well, when it happens, he rings and leaves a message for her with her mum. Oh, yes, yeah. He answers the questions she originally asked him. Yeah. That was really yeah. sweet. I forgot about that. Sort of a really good bit of writing for the character, even though the character's not delivering it. Like, it felt really... Yeah. That was nice. right. Um, I think the movie, the movie underserved their relationship in general for me, because you kind of get, like, two or three big scenes with her and John Kite. You get the first scene where they meet in Dublin, uh, you get the scene at the award ceremony and then you get the kind of end scene where they kind of make up. In the book, there's like, they're writing letters to each other constantly. They're talking on the phone. They're like, you can see how she develops these feelings for him. Whereas in the movie, it feels like she meets this man once and has a nice night, and which is kind of very teenage, I guess, and then gets swept up in her feelings for him. Well, she read, they write each other letters throughout yeah, the entire time. book. Yeah, and that's how they communicate. Like she says, she writes three or four letters to him a week. So, and he's writing back to her, I think, mm -hmm. which establishes this relationship. It's not just her mm. constantly writing to him. It feels like the only relationship she has where it feels more balanced. Like 
her and to, uh, Tony Rich is very much her giving him what he wants and not getting anything back. And that seems to be all of her relationship, apart from with Kite, where there is something that she's she's getting reciprocal. What were the changes that you enjoyed slash didn't enjoy, Ellie? I, that was the worst change for me, definitely. I think, I don't know, I think they've removed some of the things that I think would have made it, perhaps this lends it to your, like, grittiness or more just, I think it became a bit too teen for me. And that's not that I disagree that the film and the book are both YA, because they are, but I just think she took out, or they took out certain things that I think totally could have been included and would have made it feel a bit more honest and a bit more realistic, like less glossy, like you said, I guess. Yeah. Um, I do think they kind of dulled down all the sex scenes, particularly like that is the blurb on the back of the book is mm. that she has sex adventures. Yeah. <laughs> montage of like, I barely even remember it happening. Yeah. But I think the producers possibly looked at the idea of marketing a movie around a 17-year-old girl having <laughs> sex adventures and thought... I know. Wait, what are you talking about? Lady Sex Adventures is the title. <laughs> um, millions! Oh, no, billions in that. <laughs> but then I think, like, when we first watched the film, I, like, I'll be honest, I really didn't like it. And then I started reading reviews and like comments on Twitter and I kind of reflected on it. I was like, actually, maybe this film isn't for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's for... It's for Tom. Well, apparently it's Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I read a lot of people who were like, oh, I watched this with my teenage daughter and we both loved it together. And I was like, maybe, maybe I got what I needed from the book and actually the film is for a different audience that perhaps gets something else from it. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad, glad I watched it with my landlady and her her partner and it was nice watching with someone else who didn't have any context for it and they really enjoyed it they didn't think it was profound or anything but they thought it was cute and funny and there was some really good writing in it i don't, don't think it was profound but i think as a as a young adult narrative about empowerment stroke self-invention stroke learning that it's very easy to do the wrong thing and be seduced by what people around you are telling you, but that's not necessarily who you have to be. Um, which, you know, obviously core YA themes. Uh, I, thought, I thought it did a pretty good job at sort of ticking one of those boxes and that's, that's not a bad thing for me. Yeah. I still think the book is better, but you know. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're right from what you're saying. Um, and I look forward to reading the book at some point in the future. Well, I'm glad we at least sold the book to you that, you know. I mean, the book, the book didn't really need selling to me. It's just that I haven't had a great deal of time for reading. But given, given that I've read pretty much everyone else of that period talking about it, it would be an odd book for me not to read at some point. Yeah, because a lot of because it doesn't necessarily work that you see a film and it makes you want to read the book all the time. So I think it's interesting that the, the you could vary the, the narrative of the book could mirror almost identically the movie if you just drop three scenes four scenes maybe yeah. like all the few things that the book has which make it that bit darker essentially like I just also think it's the writing like, I just I do think she's a really good writer and I think that the way that she explains the emotions that she's like the things about like being so excited by the world or just like <laughs> interpreting things in this way for the first time it's really hard to translate that to film i yeah. think 
And it's hard to criticize her because she's adapted her own work. Yeah, so to a certain extent, this is how she wants it to be. I, I, I'm not sure I would agree with that. Um, you know, Alison Owen produced this. It's very hard to imagine that Alison Owen didn't tell her what she wanted and what she didn't want. Kayla Moran is a pretty powerful name. I think it's, you know, I'm sure she had a lot of pull in getting the guest actors and stuff like that. Well, well, the main actor is Alison, is Alison Owen's son. One of the guest actresses is her daughter. But, I mean, I think you put the two of them in a boxing ring and Alison Owen would flatten Kayla Moran. Okay, I don't know this behind the scenes. All right. Well, no, just Alison Owen is a, is a force of nature in terms of the British production landscape. Um, I, I and I, I think to say that Callum Moran has made all the, the decisions in the script is to massively overstate the role of the writer in the development process. It, it would have been workshopped. It would have there would have been notes. There would have been a lot of feedback in terms of I think we need to get rid of this. We need to focus on this. The narrative needs to be this, um, and and that would have come from the production team as with an eye to shaping it commercially. Um, in, in terms of how they wanted to present it. So I, I just don't think you can say it's all Callum Moran's decision. The other one we did was on Chesil Beach, which was adapted by the writer, mm-hmm. which I didn't <sighs> like. That wasn't a good, so it doesn't mean yeah. it always works. So. No, I mean, Lee McEwen arguably is a different kettle of I'm, I'm looking at the books to see, I don't think there were any other ones, if I can remember. That, yeah, I think that was the only other one. It, it doesn't happen very often because they don't necessarily have the skills to do so. So, no, agreed. It is it is slightly unusual. Um, let's see what God Country looks like when it gets better. Um, yeah, and and I think maybe because her name is quite well respected, and she had already done a TV show, so that kind of gave her a little bit of ability to kind of jump in there. I do think it's difficult though because. A lot of the dialogue is for verbatim, like, and the dialogue is very good, I think, in the movie. But, like, translating the kind of witticism of the kind of general prose into a wholly visual medium. It's just the observations, I think, it's missing. And that's what makes the book singular. And I think it's a little too cruel, for my taste, the film, in comparison to the book. Like, it doesn't, her cruelty towards characters isn't justified as much for me. And as well, I think the other change I didn't enjoy was the parents. The parents are really respected in the book, whereas in the film, they really dumbed them down. And, like, she was the adult, and I'm like, no, she wasn't really. (laughs) I think Tom's right, though. When you've you've only got, like, 90 minutes, 100 minutes to play with, um, and and you've got to focus on that kind of driving force of the narrative, it's hard to, because it's quite an ensemble class, because yeah. you're fleshing out her brother, you're fleshing out, like, the people she's working with. Like, essentially, you need to fleshing out John Kite, you fleshing out her, her parents, her brother, everyone she works with at the record label. Like, in 100 minutes, you flesh out those characters. They get 10 minutes of airtime each, and that's the movie done. I felt and like I think- everyone else, they did a good job. I would have gotten rid of, like, the teacher scenes and, like, done something else with her flesh out her character a little bit. I think you're expecting, I, I want to make one point and then I'm going to come back around to this uh, this discussion. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that they didn't go overboard in terms of tr- trying to showcase the period and sh- trying to showcase the music. 
you get a bit of it but not so much that you're going to get bored or or that for today's tastes you're going to think this is odd i think that's the relatability thing i think they did that same modern audiences would no for sure and that takes me back to the point i was about to make i think so many of the choices they made are about trying to shape it so that it is very relatable and very directed at what they view as being their core audience which isn't necessarily going to be you um and by the sounds of things, no, but by the sounds of things, a lot of what you really enjoyed about the book, um, which, which, as I said, sounds really interesting. I'm not, not taking away from it. But I think if you're a producer looking at the movie and sort of saying, okay, who are we directing it at? And how are we directing it there? And let's just focus in on the core narrative that gets us there. And we've got to talk about how we package it in terms of how we get enough name actors in to get a, a teenage audience interested. And you know, who's hot in terms of female actresses of the right age that we could put in there? Okay, she's American, we'll have to get her to do the accent. That's the only um, But I, I just think all of these, all of the things we've been talking about are pretty much along the same train of thought, which is how we hone this thing down into something that's very marketable to, to a very precise demographic. Yes, yes, all the Hollywood business stuff sounds so right, smart. <laughs> Behind the curtain of the movie magic. Oh, I'm going to go. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. No, I think it was a fun one. I think I would recommend the book to people, and I think the film is just like a general cute coming-of-age story. Oh, I'd so. recommend the movie to the right person. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's what I meant when I said, I don't think it's for me, but I don't think it was bad. Like, I yeah. think it's perhaps wasn't what I needed from it. But I think there are, yeah, they, for the audience they want, then I'm sure that they got a lot out. It's odd, because I'm looking at a couple of projects that intersect with this. Mm -hmm. I, I will be getting people to watch this. Um, okay. Interesting. Mm. Of this genre, like that kind of coming of age? No, in terms of the background, actually, in terms of the scene and the time and the bands. The 90s. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I I do think it's very interesting how it doesn't linger on, you know, in some ways, if you watched a lot of it, the mise-en-scene, you wouldn't necessarily know it was the 90s. No, no. no. I, that was another thing, like we were talking, when we were, when we watched it, we were discussing afterwards as people who were adults in the 90s, it was like, they didn't really talk about the politics of what was going on. There's obviously lots of writing in London that you should have seen, really. You know, and that Thatcher was in power, and the end of Thatcher, and the racism, like you would not have a he head of a music magazine who was black at that time. No, but I quite enjoyed the fact that they didn't get bogged down in that, in the sort of way that if you set out in a very formulaic way to make a movie about the music scene of that period, you would feel compelled to do the politics, to have a montage sequence of key newsreel events of the time. Yeah, like 24-hour party people does exactly that, like, right. but that's about the music, you know, whereas this isn't about that. I think- No, it, I, I, felt, I felt glad it didn't feel the need to get bogged down in all of that. I mean, human traffic does exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it dates it immediately. And I think, because what you say, Tom, because they're aiming this at like, at that particular audience, they want it to be relatable to them. So the kind of, it is more set dressing than anything, the fact that it's yeah. the 90s. Oh, I know. If, if we saw footage of Thatcher being helped out of Downing Street, we'd be like, oh, yeah, I know this is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas teenagers now would be like, who's that lady? What's yeah, going yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. They gave her a for that reason. 
because the typewriter is her being like a bit pretentious writer if they give yeah. her like a terrible 90s oh, wait okay can we talk about this so we talked about this at home no council estate girl has a laptop in the early 90s because in the book she talks about having a laptop but that's after she's been working for the I magazine. They gave it to her. Well, nobody's got a laptop in the 90s. Exactly. No one has a fucking laptop in the oh, 90s. If you have a typewriter, it doesn't matter what they pay you. Who's got a laptop? She says she moves to London with a laptop in the book. But that's like 92, 93? Yeah, it would be like... Ch- Chandler has one in Friends in 92, so... Yeah, he's rich. I... She doesn't have that much money. But it could be like on loan from the office. It might not be hers. I mean, I. But also, she talks about have, having a computer at the house that she borrows to work. Like the, she's fighting with her brother to use the computer. Yeah, but that's like. Uh, we had a computer when I was a kid. Well, like, computer, but laptop is different. Like a like a computer, you do word processing. Can't afford a TV, but they have a computer. Oh, I love the TV detail. I I remember the days of TV rental companies. <laughs> we didn't have that in the states. You had to buy your TV. No, you could. As we when we were students, we rented it by the week. Oh my gosh! We, we got very excited because we like rented a really snazzy like one that was about this big. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I found that weird in the book. I was like, "You're a well-off family that you guys have so many computers everywhere." <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is that is odd. Yeah, the the two things together don't don't sit well. Was the one I, I think the typewriter is a good case in point, actually, because it, it didn't get lingered on. It was just... No, I think that was... Yeah. And it's, you know, people use typewriters now or whatever. It doesn't... not really something to pinpoint as a period of time. Um, okay, so Rose and Thorns of the How to Build a Girl. Oh, me? Uh, I... My favorite scenes were the Lady Sex Adventures. I thought they were, those were hilarious in the book anyway. Um... And in the film, just, in, you know, in general, I think, like, her ability to navigate social situations, I was sort of like, yeah, <laughs> you know, and kind of like how she stood up to people I quite enjoyed, um, just like, who, you know, were twice her age. I thought I was really impressed with her portrayal of the character. Thorn, you know, I did, yeah, I didn't like how, what they did with the parents, disappointing. Yeah. Oh. Come on, guys. We just talked about this. I just can't think of a thorn. Um, oh, is that good? Wow. Tom's favorite I'm going to have to tell Tom too about this. Any movie that name checks Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine has my enthusiasm. <laughs> um, I, I, I really enjoyed the dynamic with the, the rock star. Um, with John Pike. Alfie Allen, yeah. I think. Yeah, Alfie Allen, usually I don't care for his work. I thought he was great. I thought the dialogue was really well written. It was smart, moved along, felt true to the characters, surprised me, didn't bore me. I, 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 I really enjoyed that much more than I think I would have, you know, if he described to me what I was going to watch in regards to those two characters, I think I would have gone, oh God, that sounds awful. <laughs> Like some, some I'm glad we didn't. Girls' fantasy of how life is, or you know, and it just it, it was so much better than, than that. Um, Thorn, I, I don't know. I mean, I just kind of enjoyed the whole thing, to be perfectly honest. Yes, a lot of it is by the numbers. Um, you know, the English teacher scenes were potentially superfluous. Um, 
a lot of it you could see coming. A lot of it wasn't that surprising. Um, but but why should it have to be? It, it did what a movie of this type should do really, really well. Um, I liked it. I can't think of anything terrible to be perfect. Okay, that's, you know, you've overall 10 stars. Wow. Oh, okay, let's, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's, 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 let's just calm down. It's not the Big Lebowski. Uh, <laughs> nothing. You're really fangirling over this. <laughs> No, I just genuinely had a good time. And maybe maybe that is a reflection of the fact that during lockdown, I've been trying to better myself from watching a lot of black and white movies with subtitles that have been potentially slogs rather than, than fun-filled escapades. But uh, no, I, I enjoyed it uh, a lot. So I, I can't, nothing stood out as like a glaring misstep. Okay, that's fair. Very nice. Okay. Uh, my rose is genuinely Tom's reaction. <laughs> because I think I watched it and didn't love it, like initially, and I really wanted to love it. And I think actually seeing it from your perspective has made me like it more than I did originally. So that's nice. Uh, but my thought is... <laughs> Sorry, Beanie. I love her. Yeah. But it wasn't for me. You can go. Your turn. Uh, my, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do. I'll do it. Uh, I there's a, the, the 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 scenes in both the book and the movie. But the book, when she goes to London for her interview, in the movie she just goes to London by herself and rocks up. In the book, because she's a child, her dad has to take her, and it's just very like a very endearing and sweet scene. Wait, she goes to the concert with her dad in the film and the book. Oh, uh, in the um, when she goes to the to into the interview to get the job. Oh yes, yes. By herself in the book, her dad has to take her, um, which I thought was really sweet. Um, and thorn. If you don't have one, that's okay. No, I do. I just I was trying to think of something. If there's something I hadn't said already that. That I thought necessarily needed to mention. Summarize. No, it it probably is the fact that she that she does kind of undermine John Kite's trust and writes mm. that kind of hell yeah. piece about him. It just feel I I can see why the movie did it because it really does give it this. It's quite a gut punch to have her do that. Yeah. Um, but it, in 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 the book, it feels like he's her through line, like. Her relationship with him is is kind of her being the person she wants to be. Uh, and that kind of undermines it a bit in the movie. But it's not the end of the world. But yeah, I thought that was a shame. Oh, this was a nice one, guys. I enjoyed it. Um, well, thank you.